Father, we uh, plead mercy. Father, we pray that you would grant mercy to us as well as we seek to look at your word. And we pray that, Father, as we hear from your word today, that your spirit would work in our hearts. Would you produce in us the life of Christ? Conform us to his image. May you be glorified in all that is said. May you alone receive the honor. And may your people benefit from what they hear today. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus and for your great glory. The God who sees, the God who hears, the God who heals, and the God who grants peace. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was at home last week um, watching online, and I heard at the end of uh, Mike's sermon that he promised you that this week you would hear the greatest sermon (laughs) that you have ever heard in your life. And that was the reason that if you came on Saturday night last night, you should come back today. I don't want to make Mike a liar. So I'm going to keep that promise right now. So let me give you the greatest sermon that you've ever heard in your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you want to hear the rest of that sermon, I advise you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 through verse 7. That sermon was delivered years ago in Israel by the greatest man who ever walked the earth and the greatest preacher who has ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. There is no greater sermon. There is no greater preacher than Jesus Christ. Uh, And if you listen to his words, you will have heard the best sermon. More have been written about what he said. More have lived their lives based on what his words have said than any other preacher who has ever lived. So you have heard the greatest sermon (laughs) in your life. (laughs) Now we can get to my sermon. (laughs) We're not going to talk about greatness. We're just going to talk about averageness. So let, let, me, let me open up. Uh, it was referenced last night, but, I, but I'm not going to change my opening, even though it was brought up last night. It, it was one that struck me, and I thought it was a good uh, beginning. Uh, you know, the news was a buzz this past week, and as, even into this week, with the events that happened after the Academy Awards last week. Uh, if you got a chance to watch uh, some of the video footage, it, it, it was shocking. Uh, you, you know that as, as part of the Academy Awards that Chris Rock was presenting one of the awards, and in the process of doing that, he, he went off script, it seems, and passed a, a, a joke uh, about Jada Pinkett Smith, who suffers with alopecia, which is a, a form of an autoimmune disease that causes hair loss. Uh, I'm not sure if he knew it or not. Perhaps he didn't know, uh, and he was just cracking a joke in, in the moment. Uh, being a professional comedian and having done it for years. And uh, it, it, it produced a response in her husband that no one was expecting. Uh, Will Smith, uh, at first when the camera caught him, he was laughing, but then he saw his wife's reaction. And it seems that once he saw his wife's reaction, he decided to change his perspective on what had just been said. He cordially walked up on the stage and slapped Chris Rock uh, very, very uh, hard. Uh, which Chris Rock reeled back from it. He then proceeded to walk calmly back to his seat. He sat down and began to yell from the seat, keep your names, my names, my wife's name out of your mouth, with a few colorful words added to that. Uh, Of course, Chris Rock, uh, being the professional himself, 
as everyone else who was watching the footage was in shock. Um, he, he, he just mentioned what happened. Will Smith just came up on the stage and slapped me, Chris Rock. And he went on to present the award. Uh, it seems like there was someone in the audience that he was looking at, he just shrugged his shoulders at him like, what am I to do with what just happened? Later that night, Will Smith went on to receive an Oscar for his movie that he had just done, King Arthur. And uh, in, the, in his uh, comments, of course, he uh, made an apology to those who were watching, uh, ignoring Chris Rock, of course, he was not part of that, and then went on to, to in some way, justify uh, his actions. And, and he went back and sat down. And so the night proceeded and ended. Uh, as the week began to go by, he began to realize that he had done something wrong. And so on Tuesday, he, by via social media, sent out an apology to Chris Rock and to his family for what he had done. And events began to go on. And I went on to watch some other news footage to figure out how people were feeling about what had happened. And I found that there were some mixed responses. Videocasters and others were weighing in on the issue and seeing it from different perspectives. There, there were those who felt like, hey, listen, what Will Smith did, amen. That's what we need more of in America. He stood up. His wife was insulted in his face. He didn't let that pass. He stood up and he took action. That's the kind of man that we need. There were others who felt differently about it. They, they, they said instead what they saw here was a, 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 a brutal assault in public and which no one responded to, and this was the evidence of a troubled life and a troubled man. Some comics have, have commented and said, what does this mean now? What will be the next inciting event as a result of the precedent that he set? Will this be the death of comedy? And so people are weighing in on whether or not what he did was right or wrong. The Academy Awards finally weighed in and they denounced his actions, saying that, that his behavior was wrong and even stating as they came out later this week to say, hey, look, we tried to ask him to leave, but he refused to get up. And so they started an investigation for discipline. And as of yesterday, Will Smith resigned from the Academy because of his actions with some very repentant words. You know, as I was thinking about all of that, I realized that Will Smith is not the only one that people want to bring into review when actions have been taken. See, when, when suffering and tragedy happen in the world, uh, it can make us feel like we've been slapped and that an injustice has been done. And if you hold that God rules the world like people in past generations, it may cause you, as it has for me in times past, to wonder and question and maybe even want to judge God. A miscarriage, a failed relationship, a health crisis, the loss of a family member or friend under any circumstances, the death of a dream, the loss of a job or company, a missed opportunity, persecution of any type, loss of resources or property due to natural disasters, poverty, theft of ideas or theft of identity, and we can name various other things, often lead us to ask the question, why? And inevitably, in one way or another, knowingly or unknowingly, that question is directed at God. 
Why did you cause this or why did you let this happen? And so today the book of Job brings us to deal with these very issues. And we find in this familiar story some surprising twists as we look at the life of a man who suffered greatly, Job. Today I want to present to you a view that I uh, have read in my personal devotional life, Dr. John Walton and John Tripperman's, Tripperman's view uh, on Longman on this particular text of Job. There are other views out there, but, but, but theirs make the most sense to me. And so I, I want to present to you today their view of how they put together the book of Job and what the message of Job is and share that with you. Uh, we're going to walk through the entire book at different points, but I'm just going to bring out the main points because we don't have enough time to cover every chapter in detail. So if you're familiar with the book of Job, it opens in the opening chapter by telling us about a man named Job who lives in ancient times. He's not an Israelite. And we find out that he possesses great wealth, unlike anyone around him. He has a good reputation in his community, and he's blessed in his family. He has lots of children, 10 of them. He's extremely devout, and he is a man of great integrity, unlike anyone who is around him during his time. But the story begins to unfold as we are given the privilege that is often kept from humanity as we are allowed to peer into one of God's staff meetings with those who he uses to administer the world around him. And the narrator, for whatever reason, decides to focus in on one particular conversation that's happening during this staff meeting that God is holding in heaven. We'll pick up at Job chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll see it unfold here in the text. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered and said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, one of the textual notes that you'll pick up right away uh, if you're paying attention to the notes is the question is, who is God talking to? If you look at your ESV Bible like in mine, if you have ESV Bible, you'll notice that there is a note in verse 6 next to the word Satan. And there in my, Hebrew, in my uh, Bible, it reads uh, Hebrew, to referring to the original language, and it says here, the accuser or the adversary, so throughout chapters 1 and 2. And what the ESV Bible and what other Bibles note here is that if you were looking at and reading the original language, what you would notice is that the actual word that's being used here of this heavenly being is simply the adversary. Now, for historical reasons in translation, they have kept the proper name Satan, and they just simply footnoted what the actual text says in the original language. 
But here's the warning. If we do not pay attention to the footnote, we might be bringing to mind certain concepts that get developed later and bring them to bear on a text that it should not be in that text. And it may color our reading in a way that should not be colored so as to read the text wrongly. It might be Satan. Or it might not be. It might be someone else. But in light of that, I'm going to simply refer to this character in light of the text as the adversary. Now, the book of Job is not really about Job, even though he is the main person that it features. The book of Job is about God, or rather about God's policy for running the world. And the policy under question is what scholars refer to as the retribution principle. It's on the, I'll give the definition, it's on the screen. The retribution principle simply stated is this, the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. The righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. And it's this policy that the adversary wants God to reconsider. The adversary believes that God should not bless the righteous, but instead should allow the righteous to suffer. Here is the adversary's concern, that if God blesses the righteous, that might corrupt their motives for pursuing righteousness. If a righteous person knows that living a righteous life will ultimately, ultimately result in blessing, then they might live for the blessings instead of living for the right reason. And thus we come to Job. Although the adversary does not have evidence of this in Job's life, he might have reason for suspicion. As the scholars point out in verse 5, if you look back at verse 5 of chapter 1, you'll notice something about Job's behavior. Job offers sacrifices for his children after they have these gatherings and these get-togethers, based on, not evidence, but the chance that they might have sinned against God in their hearts. And this, from one perspective, might indicate that Job's view of God is deficient, and he sees God as what they refer to as petty, or he thinks that God can be managed by his offerings. And if the adversary is right, then Job's motives for why he's living a righteous life are suspect. God hears the valid concern that the adversary raises about his policy and allows the test of Job to commence. Now, we're not told exactly how the adversary works out the events that we read that transpire in the text. We just know as they transpire that he's standing behind them in some kind of causal relationship. But we're not exactly sure what that looks like and how it plays out. We just know he's behind it. In the first test, Job loses all of his wealth and all of his ten children, his seven sons and his three daughters. Through what we see a pattern in the text, human attacks and natural disasters. Well, given the conclusion of the first test at the end of in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, I'll only read verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job passes the test. We're not told about how much time passes 
God is holding another staff meeting. And, and, this, and at this staff meeting, the adversary appears again in the staff meeting to report on what he's been doing in the world. And God raises the test that has been commenced over Job and, and points to the fact that the adversary's uh, reason or policy or hypothesis that he has has failed and that it didn't produce the results that he thought in Job's life. And so as a result, the adversary wants to deal with it in a different way. God says about Job that he has kept his integrity. Let me explain what integrity means in the book of Job because each term is defined differently. As the scholars put it, the challenger asks whether Job serves God for nothing. Integrity then in the book of Job as defined by the book of Job, therefore is defined as serving God for nothing. That's what it means to have integrity in the book of Job. And so in light of the fact that the first test failed, the, the adversary offers a, some, some, some alterations to the parameters. He, he says, I, I, I get it. Yeah, that didn't work out like we thought, or at least like I thought. I, I know what you know, but I, I didn't know, so didn't know it didn't work out. Let me, let me alter the parameters. I, I know what men are after. And if you let me press him on this point, I'll prove to you that his motives are suspect. And that all that he's af after is your blessings. And so God agrees to the second test with one stipulation. You can't kill him. So the adversary said, that's fine. We can work with that. And what he brings in Job's life is a health crisis. Seeing the suffering that has transpired in her family and in her finances and now in her husband's life, Job's wife says to him, you ought to give up on God. But Job does not listen. Let me show you what the text says as it plays out in the conversation. Picking up in chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job passes the second test. He keeps his integrity. Because if Job were to follow the advice of his wife, he would prove that the adversary was right. And Job's living a righteous life would be evidence that it was because of God's blessings. So Job refused to drop his relationship with God because life was not yielding blessings. The third test of sorts begins with the arrival of Job's dear friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And after a week of silence and sitting with him in his grief, they seek to comfort Job by trying to find out and discover the cause for his suffering. Now, they ultimately represent the thinking of the ancient Near East at the time. And the conversation unfolds over the next 25 chapters. They first began by trying to advise Job, Job, turn away from your sin, brother, and seek God. And if you'll do that, he'll restore you to a blessed life. In the second set of conversation, round of talks, they talk to him about how God treats the wicked, and they infer from that, and in light of how God treats the wicked, and based on your circumstances, Job, you might be among them. Finally, in the last round, they just come out with straight-out accusation that Job is sinning, and he ought to just fess up. 
See, all of the human speakers who appear in the book hold and accept that the retribution principle is true, although they do come to each different conclusions. His friends, viewing that God mainly governs the world through justice, their thought pattern kind of goes like this, and I'll put it on the screen. God blesses the righteous. God punishes the wicked. Job is suffering, and therefore, Job must be wicked. From their point of view, Job's suffering was because he had sinned against God, whether that was knowingly or unknowingly. And if he would just simply confess to a sin that he knew about or he didn't know about, God would bring back all the good things in life. You ever been there like the friends? You watch the person's life start to break down for various reasons, or you might not be sure of the cause, and you start to wonder, you might not say it to them, but you start to wonder, what sin? have they committed that made them end up in this kind of situation? Or maybe for you, it's not other people's lives that you're wondering about, but your own life. Unbeknownst to them, they are pressing the case of the adversary. And if Job were to concede and give in to them and follow their counsel, he would prove the adversary right. But Job, as we continue to see throughout the book, throughout all of the dialogues, is unwilling to surrender his integrity. He was living a righteous life, but it wasn't for God's blessings. And ultimately, what Job is looking for is for God to declare him innocent of all charges. We see the culmination of this in his final speech as he denounces what they hold to be true about him in chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. And Job again took up his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my right? And the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. With this final statement, Job disproves the adversary's challenge of God's policies. Job is not in it for what God can give him. Now, this struck me personally, as I'm sure it might strike you. And I began to ask myself as I began to read through this, why am I really trying to live a holy life? How about you? Why are you seeking to live a righteous life, to be right in your relationships with others, to be right in how you relate to God? Is it really because you're looking for God's blessings? Now, I'm not here talking about those who would want to quickly feign and say, oh, that's the prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about those who, who buy into that. No, I'm talking about the people who don't believe in the prosperity gospel, the Bible-believing Christians who say, no, there's something wrong with the, the prosperity gospel. But deep down in the deep motivations of your heart, the question is, why are you really serving God? If God doesn't answer your prayer, will you still live a holy life? If God doesn't deliver you from the health crisis, will you still do what's right? If God doesn't bless you with the things that you're hoping for in this life, will you still honor the Lord when there's no benefit to be gained? 
Do you seek to live a righteous life because you respect God and you say, this is the right response to God and I love him? Or is it because deep down inside you're hoping that if you live righteous, God will give you something in return? How might you know? Do you find yourself angry with God when he doesn't give you what you want and what you think you deserve? It's a question that reaches to the depths of our souls. Jane Madison Hanning was a Scottish missionary of the Church of Scotland in Budapest, Hungary. Hanning worked in Budapest from June 1932 as the matron of an, a boarding house that was for mainly Jewish girls and some Christian girls in a school that the Scottish Mission to the Jews had set up. In and around 1940, after the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the Church of Scotland sent word to her. And they sent word to her three times, saying to her, return. Life is becoming unstable. Come back home where we can protect you. But she decided she would not return home. She had 30 girls that were under her charge, and she refused to leave them because she was the one responsible for their care. In a 1939 letter she wrote, we have been enabled even in small measure to lighten the lot of an oppressed people. When Germany invaded Hungary in 19, March of 1944, the SS began arranging for the deportation of the country's Jews to Auschwitz. Uh, and she was part of that. Arrested by the Gestapo in 1944, she was brought up on several charges. Some of them included that she had worked among the Jews, that she had wept when she saw children wearing yellow stars, that she had dismissed her Aryan housekeeper, that she had listened to British radio programs, that she had had British visitors, and that she had visited British prisoners of war and even sent them parcels, and that she had been active in politics. She only denied the last one. She said she had been too busy doing the work of the Lord to have time to be involved in politics. Hanning herself was later deported to Auschwitz, where two months later, she would die. And the question becomes, as we look at lives like that, am I doing it for God, or am I doing it for his blessings? The adversary is not the only one to challenge God's policies in the book of Job. Job himself brings a second challenge to God. Whereas the adversary thought it's not good that the righteous should prosper because it might corrupt their motives, Job holds that God should not make the righteous suffer because it calls his, his character into question. In the dialogue with his three friends, we read about how Job wants to defend his innocence before God. And he wanted God to show up and tell him the charges of why God was treating him like he was wicked. God, tell me what it is that I've done wrong because I'm not aware of anything. So bring the charges to court and you defend your case of why it is that you get to treat me like this. As he continued to argue with his friends, Job begins to shift in his grief from simply questioning God and wanting to be a before God to accusing God of wrongdoing. We see this in chapter 19, verse 6, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And because his suffering was so intense, Job started to view God as overly critical. 
chapter 7, verses 17 through 21, and chapter 14, verses 3 through 6. He even thought that God had forgotten to take into account the frailty and the weakness of humanity, chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. And his loss made him consider that God may even be abusive with his power. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, in light of Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. He went so far as to implicate and suggest that God might not be just. Chapter 19, verse 7, and chapter 24, verse 12. And we might ask, why all these accusatory thoughts from Job towards God? What we discover is that Job had a flawed view of how God operates in the world, which led him to come to wrong conclusions about God. Job's thought went kind of like this. God blesses the righteous. God punishes the wicked. I am righteous and I am suffering and therefore God has erred and his character is suspect. Now we know this to be an accurate view of Job because of Elihu and God himself. Later in the text we read this, then Elihu the son of Barakel the buzzite of the family of Ram burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. He then goes on to summarize what Job has been arguing throughout the book. This is what he says as he repeats what Job is saying. You say, I am pure. Without transgression, I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as an enemy. He puts my feet in stocks and watches all my paths. God goes on to confirm that Job is questioning him. When, Job, when God appears, he asks Job, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? See, what we find from the book of Job is that suffering has a way of exposing our practical theology. Because what suffering does is push out of us what we truly believe about God and the world. So when suffering hits you, what do you notice about your behavior and what comes out of your mouth when life is not going like you hope? See, based on the retribution principles, Job's friends had come to the conclusion that he was a sinner. Job, however, had declared his innocence, and he came to the conclusion that God was suspect. Elihu decides to modify the retribution principle by holding it so he could defend God's justice. And what he says is God might just not punish wicked. That's not, he doesn't just bring it as retribution on people who do wickedness, but sometimes God may use it to educate people. God may bring suffering to teach them not to sin. And then he pointed out in light of that, as Job sought to defend his innocence, that he had lapsed into self-righteousness. And this was not an appropriate attitude for a righteous person because a righteous person ought to be humble before God because God is not accountable to humans. He gets a lot right in his view, but he's still deficient in how he understands how, what is the basis of how God is managing the world. 
And so finally, we, after hearing what humans have to say, God speaks for himself, and we get to hear God's view about how things really run. And God doesn't appear in a nice, friendly way. He appears in a storm, which brings the concept of wrath because he's furious with Job. Now, he doesn't answer Job's questions. He doesn't show up to be questioned. Instead, he says, no, that's not the way this works out. You don't question me. I get to question you because I need to correct some flawed theology. Remember now, Job is accusing God because Job has assumed that he knows how the world works, and he knows in light of that how things operate in the universe, and because he knows, he can now judge God and condemn him for failing to act as God should act based on his standard. But God proves that his thinking is flawed when he shifts the conversation away from justice. Here, pictured in the retribution principle as the all-encompassing principle about how the world works, to he shifts the conversation to talk about wisdom and power. And God comes with two challenges of his own. In his first challenge, he questions Job as to whether or not he possesses the knowledge and the wisdom to design and run the universe to care for the creatures of the world, and then, if he has that, to be able to punish those who do evil. And as he lays out his argument, it, it becomes quickly clear that Job has spoken beyond what he has knowledge of. God points out in Job chapter 38, verses 25 through 27, that the rain falls in places where no one, li no one lives. The scholars bring out the relevance of, of this when they write, by noting that the rain falls on uninhabited lands, the Lord demonstrates to Job that his logic does not account for reality. In effect, the Lord asserts that justice is not the foundation of the world, nor does the cosmos operate by justice, despite the fact that he rules the cosmos and he is just. And we can understand Job's confusion, yet we can also recognize the validity of his point. No one today would argue that gravity was just, for example or that God makes decisions about when gravity should work or when it should not work. Or simply think about Jesus' own words. In the Sermon on the Mount, God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. See, Job did not possess the ability to design or govern the universe, let alone bring about justice because he did not possess the wisdom and the power. So how could he ever stand to evaluate and judge what decisions God makes? And the question comes to us, how can we either evaluate God? In his second challenge, God went on to teach Job what the proper response ought to be by using two creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Now, there are various interpretations of this. You might have your own about who behemoth is and what Leviathan is in this text. It really doesn't matter whether you take a literal view, a historical view, or a mythical view because it won't change the lesson that God is teaching. Behemoth illustrates what God wants Job's posture to be. Notice in the text that God compares the behemoth to Job. At the beginning, he says, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. Then he goes on to say he eats like a grass and talk about the posture that the behemoth takes in light of things. And what we notice about it is here's the point that God makes to Job. 
Job needs to trust God in the uncertainties of life because God is the one with the wisdom and power to run the universe and administer justice. The second lesson is the, that comes, is comes from the beast of Leviathan. And God uses this creature to teach Job about the attitude that he ought to have when he thinks about God. Notice in the text here, verse 10, he says, no one is so fierce that dares to stir him up. Here is Leviathan, speaking of humans coming against Leviathan. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And what God ultimately says is, listen, Job, if you and any other human cannot control Leviathan, why would you attempt to try to control me and put me under restraint? You can't harness me. I can't be controlled. I can't be manipulated. I'm invincible. And anyone who would seek to domesticate me will find himself dealing with harm. So God says that's a dangerous position. You ought not to try it. In light of what God presents to Job, Job ultimately repents. And we find at the end of the book of Job that the adversary and Job's challenges against God both prove to be wrong. And God alone proves to be right. And God does something interesting at the end of the book of Job. Simply out of grace, he decides because his policies have been proven in the right and others who challenge it have been proven in the wrong to reinstate his policy that he had had before the test had commenced. And he blesses Job, not because Job deserves it, but because he wants to say that his policies will stand against all those who raise anything against him. What might this mean for us? Well, God is not asking us to understand the causes for our suffering. Instead, what he wants for us is to trust him that he is wise and powerful and he's good and that he loves us and he will do what is best. When Jesus was questioned about suffering in John 9 or Luke 13, he doesn't give a reason for why people suffer. Instead, he redirects people's attention away from causes to purposes. And he says, instead of asking why me, we should be asking what purpose, God, do you want with this? How are we to think about the retribution principle? God blesses the righteous and God punishes the wicked. If we were to review the rest of Scripture, we understand that the Bible upholds the retribution principle as a way to think about God's character. God is just. But it also functions like a proverb. It tells us what is generally true about life and how God often likes to operate in the world, but it does not mean that things always work this way. Sometimes the righteous suffer and sometimes the wicked prosper. But Paul does give us the reassurance in the book of Romans that there will be a day when God will settle all accounts and the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. In light of that truth, the retribution principles does not explain why people are suffering in the world. Not everyone who, is, who ha has a good life is blessed by God. And not everyone who's suffering is a sinner that God is judging. And so we should not attempt to look at people in that light. It doesn't mean that we don't know some reasons, sometimes the reasons why we, or we or are aware of the reasons or causes for why we suffer. Like sometimes we make bad choices and we reap the benefits of those bad choices and we know what the cause was. But that's not always the case. Another question that often arises is, does, this book, does the book of Job then teach us in light of the way God appears in the book of Job that we cannot approach God? That's not the point of what Job is doing. The Psalms teach us that God is approachable with all kinds of things. 
that we can be honest with God about our feelings and where we are. But what Job communicates is that we should not treat God as though he is less than God and try to evaluate or judge him based on our limited understanding of what's going on in the universe. Brothers and sisters, we're not God's accountability partners. And we should stay away from any kind of thought that would cause us to accuse God of wrongdoing. How's your practical theology doing? In the Old Testament, Job is the only innocent person to suffer, truly speaking. And what God asks of him ultimately is, trust me. This points us forward to the only innocent person to suffer in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what we notice about Job is that he suffers unwillingly, but Jesus suffers willingly. And not for himself, but he suffers for us willingly, even though he was innocent. And when he suffered unjustly, he did what God had asked of Job. Peter writes this, and we'll close with these words. For to us, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, how are you living and why are you living a righteous life? When you encounter suffering in this life, Trust that God has the power, the wisdom, and that he cares about you, and he's doing what is right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word that challenges to the core of our being. And we pray, Lord, that you would purify our motives, that when we see others in need, that we will reach out a, help to hand, a helping hand to relieve suffering in the world because we respect you as God and because we love you not looking for some benefit in return, but that we would seek to honor you with our lives. As we hear about the needs of those who are suffering, we will seek to lift their suffering because you are God that delivers. And Father, we pray right now, even as we give, that we give with joyful and cheerful hearts to support your work in the world, to, to be a blessing to others. And we give it with open hands, with humility in our hearts, recognizing that all good things that we have have come from you. Would you bless my brothers and sisters now as they give or have already given in some capacity this week? We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.